You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. You can be seated and good morning, 10 o'clock. So glad that you are here. From the time of, of Paul's salvation, he was engaged in this constant and, and dangerous war. Some of the war was with his very real enemy, our very real enemy, Satan, who, who wanted him dead. Some of the war was within himself, his own flesh, his own desires, which wanted him to not live by the Spirit. Some of the war was, was worldliness, the systems of this world, which wanted him to compromise. And some of the war, sadly, was with other believers who wanted him to be silent. And maybe some of those battles sound strangely familiar to you. A lot of these battles are, are the same for us. And the past are same for us right now. It will be the same for you even this week. Paul was under this relentless attack constantly by these false teachers who had gone to Corinth. You might remember Paul had started the church there in Corinth and stayed there for 18 months, had left on some other missionary journeys. And while he was gone, these false teachers moved in. He'll call them super apostles, uh, men who were very impressive with their speech, uh, very impressive by their appearance. And yet they were pushing a false doctrine, a false gospel to the Christians, to the church there in, in Corinth. Not only were they in, in endeavoring to destroy Paul's, Paul's um, rep, reputation, but they're also trying to destroy his very confidence. Perhaps there have been days, perhaps you're in those days right now when you feel like you're being attacked by others, by the enemy, maybe by friends, maybe by the circumstances of life, maybe even attacked by, by your own mistakes. And so the big question for all of us this morning is simply this, how do we live in confidence? How do we live in victory? If you'll turn in your copy of God's word to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the tone of chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 11 is a battle strategy for living in confidence, for living in victory. So if you'll go with me, please, the book of 2 Corinthians, we've been here all summer long, is eight books into the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians. In chapters one through nine, Paul is speaking primarily to the church to the Christians there in Corinth. But here in chapter 10 and chapter 11, Paul addresses rather forcibly the, the false teachers. He's gonna address them and head, head straight on an attack toward them. Second Corinthians chapter 10, let's pick it up here in verse one, verse two, we'll start there. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you and I'm away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. And so you see um, Paul addressing the, these false teachers, but we see in these first two verses, Highland, a great way to live life. First of all, with, with compassion. Do you see this in verse one, meekness? In verse one, gentleness. In verse one, with humility. And so Paul's gonna, gonna come to, to these false teachers. He's gonna come to battle with compassion. But he's gonna match that with another C word, courage. We see the word bold in verse one. We see the word boldness in verse two. 
He's going to live with this compassion, but also with this, with this courage. Usually, a lot of us within the Christian faith, we live with one or the other. We live with a lot of compassion, but we never show courage. Or some of us in this room, we show a lot of courage, but very little compassion. Paul lives right in the tension, right in between those two things. He lived a life of compassion with the humility of Christ, the gentleness of Christ, but he also lived life with this boldness, this courage, which led him really to live with a third word that also begins with C, confidence. We see it here in verse two. Living in those two things, compassion and, and courage, Paul, it gave Paul this key word, verse two, confidence. And that word is repeated again in the middle of verse seven. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so are we. So this idea of confidence is built in all throughout this chapter of chapter 10. Let's pick it up here in verse three. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse three. For though we wage Excuse me, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have, if you will, we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We see here this morning the, the first point, the first thing in which we can find confidence. And here it is, confidence to win spiritual battles. It's not if you go into a spiritual battle this week, it's when you go into a spiritual battle this week. And Paul says here, though we are walking in the flesh as humans, in verse three, we do not war according to the flesh. Well, when we go to battle, Paul is saying, we're not gonna battle uh, using human Weapons. The word war in this passage, your Bible might translate it warfare, is the Greek word strat uomai. Strat uomai is where we get our English word for strategy. And so Paul is reminding us right here that we need, need to go to battle with, with strategy. No general has ever won a battle without good strategy. No coach has ever won the big game without a good strategy. No business has been successful without a good strategy. So let's see this morning some strategies for you and I to have this confidence in winning spiritual battles this week. Here's the first thing. Bring spiritual weapons to the spiritual battle. This week, family, you're going to have spiritual battles. So you need to make sure you're bringing spiritual weapons to the spiritual battle. Our battles are not primarily physical. Our battles this week will be spiritual in nature. We are material people living in a spiritual world. So our powerful weapons that we need to bring to battle this week are not flesh weapons. But most of us in this house, we know how to use flesh weapons. We all have PhDs in flesh weapons. In fact, Galatians chapter five lists out those, those, those flesh weapons for us, anger, Impurity, drunkenness, division, self-centeredness, jealousy. We often bring those weapons in, into battle with us and we keep wondering why we're losing. We keep bringing flesh weapons into a spiritual battle. Listen, if you bring a physical weapon to a spiritual battle, you're gonna lose every single time. And Ephesians chapter six tells us what that weapon is. And it's the word of God. We bring God's word into battle. Your time in God's word, sister, your time in God's word, brother, it's not just some warm, tender, two-minute experience you have in the morning time. 
Your time in God's word is not a social media opportunity for you to take a picture of your Bible and your coffee right next to it. Uh, your, your time in God's word is not some shallow devotional thought that just gives you goosebumps for a few moments. No, time in God's word is battle. It's the renewing of your mind. It's the washing of God's word, Ephesians chapter six, verse 26. And the washing of God's word, it helps us to think clearly. It helps us to think strategically. It helps us to think biblically. It clears out all the junk that we've accumulated throughout the day and throughout the week. God's word has a way of renewing our thinking. And if you're not in God's word, let me just say this lovingly, if you're not in God's word, you're living life without your weapon. And you'll find yourself in the same sin cycle 10 years from now that you find yourself in today, but only deeper. Because sin always cycles downwardly. But God's word is, is, is our weapon for the spiritual battle. Here's the second strategy. Demolish godless things in your personal life. Demolish godless things that are in your personal life, your personal world, your personal view. It, it takes, verse four, divine power to destroy strongholds. Strongholds are those fortified, um, deeply rooted things in our lives that, that build themselves up against God things that are counter to the character of Christ in our lives. And the goal here is to destroy them. I wanna make sure you hear this very clearly this morning. The goal, God is not asking us to trim them back. He's not asking us to limit the effects of the strongholds in our lives. He's not asking us just to be aware of those strongholds, nor to tame them, nor to cage them, but to demolish them, to root them out. Look what it says there in verse four, destroy them. Your Bible might use the word demolish. If I were you with your pen or your pencil, whatever you have, underline that word in your Bible. Destroy. It's there two different times. To destroy strongholds. Verse five, we destroy arguments. The word might be demolished for you. I think that's so important that if your neighbor's Bible is open, underline it in their Bible also. If they're not doing it right now. Like it's that key of a word, like destroy and demolish these things. What do we destroy? Verse five, we destroy arguments. And it seems like in context here is to talk about the arguments we have in our own lives. I think you could probably understand that as any kind of defense mechanism we have in our lives with our own sin. When we justify our own sin, we have defensive reasons on why we sin. We need to destroy those things. We need to destroy, verse five, any lofty opinion. That means anything puffed up inside of you, anything that is arrogant in your thinking. If you think too highly of yourself, God's word says here, destroy it, demolish it. What else do we destroy? Verse five, anything that's raised up against the knowledge of God. In other words, anything godless in your life, anything that's counter to God in your life, root it out, move it away from your world, destroy it in your personal life. The third strategy we see here is arrest every thought and take it to Jesus. We take, you see this in verse five, we take captive each thought. So every thought that crosses your mind, the scripture says here, arrest it, to take it as a prisoner and present that thought to Jesus. So it's not, as it is in our culture today, think, do. Think, do. How many of us in this house have found ourselves in trouble because we thought something and we just did it? We're a think, do generation. We're a think, do culture, but God's word is saying right here, think, stop. Bring it to Jesus and either do that or don't do that. Act on that or do not act on that. No longer think, do, but think, stop, arrest, bring it to Jesus and then make a decision of what you should do. Why arrest every thought? 
Why take prisoner every thought and take it to Jesus? Here's my thought. You can write this down because every step toward godliness and every step toward sin begins with a thought. If you're gonna step more and more toward Jesus this week, it's gonna begin with a thought. If you're gonna step more and more away from Jesus this week, it's gonna begin with a thought. The majority of things we do in life are voluntary. Most choices we make are based upon our thinking. So when you choose anger, or you choose a critical word, or you choose gossip, it begins every time with a thought. But the inverse is also true. Honoring the Lord with your words, honoring the Lord with your attitude, that begins with a thought. When you choose laziness or you choose apathy, it begins with a thought. The inverse is also true. To act in service toward others, to act with a humble spirit, it begins with a thought. When you choose pornography, when you choose sexual behavior outside of the biblical bounds of marriage, it always begins with a thought. But the inverse is also true. Purity of heart, purity of eyes, godly boundaries within a relationship that always begins with a thought. When you choose racism or prejudice or hate, it, it begins with the thought. But the inverse is also true. To build a bridge across racial lines or to repent of prejudice or to repent of hate, it always begins with a thought. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, let's pick it up here in verse seven. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so, are, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. Speaking of 1 Corinthians and some other letters that, that, that he wrote that have been lost to history. Verse 10, for they say, meaning the, the false, false teachers say, these super apostles say, his letters are really good. They're weighty. They're strong. But his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of you who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. This is interesting. The second thing in which we can find confidence this week in the middle of spiritual battle, confidence in belonging to Christ. If you are a Christian and you are a follower of Christ, you are a daughter of God through Jesus, you're a son of God through Jesus, you can have this confidence that you belong to him. What does Paul mean by that in verse seven, that he is Christ? Well, first of all, he would mean that he's a new creation in Christ, that, that he has been adopted by God through, through the son, Jesus Christ. He's truly related to Christ. He is in Christ. But secondly, when he says that he belongs to Christ or he is Christ, he is saying, Jesus is my owner. Jesus controls my life. He's the controller of my life. He's the Lord over my life. And probably thirdly mixed into that is that Paul is saying, I have participated in his new life. I am in Christ. I belong to Christ. I am his. That means I've participated in the new life that Jesus offers. Paul could easily say right here, you didn't know me in my old life, but I was no good. I was dead. I was a murderer of Christians, but now I'm a participant in this new life that Christ offers. He had this confidence. You this week can have this confidence that you belong to Jesus and want to know whether someone truly belongs to Christ or not, look at verse eight, this is how we know. You could ask, do they build up the church or do they destroy the church? This is what Paul is saying here, here in verse eight. I am in Christ, I know I belong to Christ because I, I, I'm here to build up 
the church. How do you know if someone in Waco, someone in Highlands, someone in, in, in your world, your own heart, if you belong to Christ, ask if they build up the church, if they strengthen the church, if they make the church spiritually strong, spiritually sound, spiritually solid, spiritually mature, spiritually unified. You know that that person is in Christ. But Paul would say here, the false teachers or, or the wolves in, in sheep clothing, those who don't belong to Christ, they tear down the church. They're confusing, they're divisive, they, they bring these destructive effects upon the church. Their influence in the church is contrary to the purpose of Christ. Only those who belong to Jesus build up the church. Let me just call a quick time out because this is a great statement about the confidence we have in belonging to Christ. Let me just say to all, all the sisters in the room, if you belong to Jesus, sisters, the truest thing about you is that you belong to Christ. It's not what the mirror says. It's not what other people say about you. The truest thing about you is that you belong to Christ. Brothers in the room, can I remind you of this statement as well? The truest thing about you is not what other people say about you or the performance in the athletic field. It's not your grades. It's not who you are in the gym. The truest thing about you is that you belong to Jesus. I need to say that because there's a lot of things in our lives that, 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 that change. A lot of things in our lives that, that are different from season to season. But the truest thing about you, Christian, is that you belong to Christ. If that, what well, is true, but if we knew that was true and believed that was true, it would revolutionize the way you and I live life. We would stop chasing after untrue things. And we would stop believing untrue things if we knew that the truest thing about us is that we belong to Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. But we will not boast beyond limits. This is fascinating to me. We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did to reach you, as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ, We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another areas, another's area of, of influence. What is he saying here? Here's the third confidence that you and I can have this week, a confidence in God's calling in our lives. Paul was willing, I think you saw this in verse 13, Paul was willing to minister within limits. In other words, within the calling on, on his life. Something is very true about false teachers. They don't want anybody putting limits on their influence. David McKenna, um, he's retired now, but he was the president of Asbury Seminary, um, the name of a school that we've seen in the news a lot this year. David McKenna said, self-styled messiahs are always megalomaniacs. Their sense of mission has, has no limitations short of conquering the world. And at the slightest signal that their efforts are being frustrated, they respond with rage. But Paul would say right here, a true woman of God, a true man of God, there's a willingness to minister within the limits. Paul was saying, I'll run in my lane, I'll run in my calling, and I'll tell you what happens in my lane, but I won't go beyond that. 
And let me just say, if you're under the age of 30, there's a big lie that I'm afraid your generation has fallen for. And that says, if you're not famous, you're not effective. And that's a big lie from the enemy. Statistically speaking, no one in this room is gonna be famous. Biblically speaking, everyone in this room should be faithful. Faithful to the calling that God has, has given to us. Christian, listen, Paul was gifted and so are you. Paul was given this field of, of, of service and so have you. He was, he was granted a lane to run in and, and, and so have you. Paul had a calling and so do you. And that calling in your life is as unique as your spiritual gifts plus your passions, plus your experiences in life, plus your abilities. So how do you know that you're living in your calling? Because this is always gonna be the end result of that calling. It is always gonna glorify God and not yourself. And it's always gonna be for the good of others. And it's always gonna build up the church. This is what's amazing to me about the majesty and the detailed nature of God. Every one of us in this house, we have a different equation. Our spiritual gifts, plus our passions, plus our life experiences, plus our abilities. Uh, if there's 1,050 people in here today, there's 1,050 unique callings. But this is wonderful. They all land in the same place. God being glorified, not you, not me. The good of others, and the church being built up. Think about that. 1,050 unique callings in this room, and we're all heading the same direction. God be glorified, not my name. Jesus, build up your church, not my following, not my name, not my fame. And may it all be for the good of others. So if that's true, and I promise you this is true, we should be more concerned about the quality of what we do for the king rather than the scope of what we do for the king. We should be more concerned about the excellence of what we do for Christ more than the success of what we do for Christ. We should be more concerned about the, the depth of what we do more than the breadth of what we do. Paul doesn't make some wild self-congratulatory ego congratulations to himself. He doesn't want to show everybody all the great things he's done. He speaks only of what Christ has done through him in, listen, the sphere, verse 16, the sphere of his calling. God has sovereignly designed and apportioned to him this measure. And the same is true for every Christian in this room. Have confidence in the calling that God has on your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. This, this thought continues here. Let the one who boasts, if you're gonna brag, brag in the Lord, boast in the Lord. Uh, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord, Lord commends. Now remember, Paul didn't just wrap it up and say, okay, end of chapter, end of thought. He kept on writing, so let's just keep on reading. Chapter 11, verse one. I wish you would bear with me in just a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to, to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you have received a different spirit from the one that you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Here's the fourth confidence in which we can live this week. Confidence in the only Savior. If there can be, verse four, another savior or another Jesus, 
then it means that people can look and will look to other things to try to save them. You know that's what the name Jesus means, the one who saves. It's the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament, the one who saves. And so if there can be a verse four, another Jesus, then it means that people can look and will look for other things to, to try to save them. But it also means if you can look for another Jesus, there's only one true Jesus, the true one that, that saves. The false teachers were coming into Corinth and they were saying, keep the law if you want to be saved. Keep the 613 code to the Old Testament if you want to be saved. If you want to be saved, keep striving. If you want to be saved, hold your own salvation. If you want to be saved, finish the work of salvation. And this was so concerning to Paul. So he reminds them in verse two, there's only one savior of the church. There's only one husband of the bride. And he is saying in verse three how easily you and I can be deceived and move off of our devotion to Christ. So it kind of begs a really important eternal question for all of us here today. How do you know that the true Savior has saved you? There's a key word, and the word is grace. It is his grace that saved you. It's his grace that is sustaining you, and you rest in the grace that he will finish the work he started in you. Past, present, in future. And if at any point along the way you think you're saved because of what you have done or where you showed up on a Sunday morning or that you hang out with religious people or that you were baptized as a kid and anywhere along the line you think that your salvation past, present, future has anything to do with what you might be able to strive in doing, you may not have your faith in the true Jesus because it's grace and grace alone that saves us, grace and grace alone that sustains us. And if I can borrow a phrase from the hymn writer, and it's grace and grace alone that will lead us home. Grace is how you know you've been saved by the only true Savior. It's this good and perfect gift of grace that brings us this confidence that we have been saved by the only Savior. Would you stand with me, please? for us to pray together. Father, thank you for your word today, re reminders of the confidences in which we can stand this week. We can have the confidence that, that we have been given the good armament with, with God's word, a spiritual weapon for the spiritual battles we'll face this week. Confidence that there is a calling in our lives, confidence that there is a true savior, Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, a savior who saves us based on his grace and not our merit, his grace and not our works, his completed work at the cross and not our striving. Remind us today of the confidence we have that we belong to Jesus. We have participated in his new life. He is Lord, he is the owner, he is the controller of our lives. When we face the battles this week, God, I pray that all of your sons and daughters in this room would stand in confidence. In the name of Christ Jesus, the only Savior and our victor, we pray. Amen. We're gonna sing a couple of songs of, of worship to the Lord. And the, the word of the Lord has been delivered to you, has been given to you. 
One of my responsibilities every week is to deliver God's word to you, sometimes better Sundays than other Sundays, but your responsibility every Sunday is to receive God's word. Let it recalibrate you. At times it encourages us, at times it reproofs us. At times it's a comfort, at times it's a conviction. But we always wanna give you the opportunity after God's word has been delivered and you have faithfully took it in, you've faithfully taken it, you've faithfully heard the word of the Lord. For you to respond, maybe by worshiping the Lord, but maybe often by you coming and just kneeling before the Lord. One of the things for which you could come forward and, and, and kneel would be, God, there's some things in my life I need to demolish. I'm just gonna leave them here at the altar. And that can be anything from a habit to an addiction to a stronghold. Something on the outside, something on the inside. Something you need to stop or something you need to start. But I'd encourage you to just come and kneel before the Lord, your God, your maker, and just lay down some of those things that need to be destroyed in your life. We'll have some staff members here at the front. They'd love to pray with you. Maybe there's some things you're walking through, a season that you're in right now where you need some support, some help, some friendship, just someone to pray over you and to encourage you. We'd love for you to come forward and pray with one of the staff. Our staff would love to pray with you. Let's worship this King together, this present God. Let's sing, and won't you please come?